Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to expand your consciousness, stimulate your thoughts, enhance your physical and mental health, and encourage community. Today, we have an interview with Dr. Dwight Lundell. Dr. Lundell is an experienced cardiovascular and thoracic surgeon with 25 years experience who has done over 5,000 open heart surgeries. Stay tuned and you're going to hear why Dr. Lundell thinks that preventing heart disease with statin drugs is dangerous and fraudulent. You'll hear about his two books, The Great Cholesterol Lie and The Cure for Heart Disease. Stay tuned. You're going to want to hear this very interesting interview about a topic that is near and dear to most everyone in this country. But first, news and notes in psychology and medicine. Drinking, smoking, and using recreational drugs will probably not reduce a man's fertility, a new study suggests, but working on a road crew might. British researchers studied 2,249 men who visited fertility clinics after a year of trying unsuccessfully to impregnate a partner. The men completed detailed health and behavioral questionnaires, and each man provided semen samples for analysis. After a detailed analysis of uh, the data, the scientists found that modifiable behaviors such as manual work and wearing jockey shorts were associated with abnormal semen, but high body mass index, which means overweight, excessive alcohol consumption, smoking, and use of recreational drugs had no relationship to semen quality. Let me repeat that. High body mass index, excessive alcohol consumption, smoking, and the use of recreational drugs had no relationship to semen quality. However, there are lots of recommendations about what men should do to improve there's to improve their fertility, but there's very good evidence, there's very little good evidence that any of them will work. Bottom line, if a man wants to do something, changing from jockey shorts to boxer shorts may help. What do you think of that, guys? Um, global weight gain is more damaging than rising numbers. This topic is apropos to our interview today. Listen to this. Researchers say that increasing levels of fatness around the world could have the same impact on global resources as adding an extra billion people. A billion extra. The team estimated that the total weight of people on the planet and found that North America had the highest average. Listen to this, folks. Only 6% of the global population live in North America, and yet we are responsible for more than a third of the obesity. Yep, while Asia accounts for 61% of the global population, it only accounts for 13% of the weight of the world due to obesity. 
Wow. What the researchers are saying is one of the problems with our definition of obesity is that it fosters a them and us ideal. In other words, them is those that are either the fat ones or the thin, skinny ones, and us is the other side. Actually, the scientists say we're all getting fatter. Yep, we are all getting fatter. But guess who is at the top of the list? The United States, with its well-documented documented problems with weight, is top of the list. If the rest of the world were to emulate the Americans, says Professor Roberts, it would have dramatic implications for the entire planet. If every country in the world had the same level of fatness as we see in the United States of America in weight terms, that would be like an extra billion people of world average body mass. The Japanese, on the other hand, are a different example. Whereas the average body mass index in the United States was over 28.7. Remember, if you're over 25, you're into overweight and then moving towards obese. The average in the United States is 28.7. In Japan, it was 22. You can be lean without being really poor and Japan seems to have pulled that off. There are many reasons for it, but the bottom line is the United States is leading the world in obesity and overweight. And that brings us directly into our interview today. Our guest today is Dr. Dwight C. Lundell. He's an experienced cardiovascular and thoracic surgeon with over 25 years experience. He's done over 5,000 open heart surgeries. He was certified with the American Board of Surgery, the American Board of Thoracic Surgery, and the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. Dr. Lindell was a pioneer in off-pump coronary artery bypass or beating heart surgery, which reduced surgical complications and recovery times. He has served as chief resident at the University of Arizona and Yale University Hospitals, and later served as Chief of Staff and Chief of Surgery at both those institutions. Dr. Lindell was also one of the founding partners of the Lutheran Heart Hospital, which became the second largest heart hospital in the United States. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, Dr. Lindell. Well, thank you so very much. It's wonderful to be here. Let's begin by addressing this statement that has been attributed to you, and let's hear if you agree that this is your statement, that treating or attempting to prevent heart disease with statin drugs is dangerous and fraudulent. Did you say that? Uh, I did. Okay, tell us the reasons why, please. <laughs> I stand by it. Uh, I, I have actually written another little article, and I called statin drugs the, uh, the Bernie Madoff of drugs. Bernie Madoff only stole, uh, what, $30 billion, and we, we waste $30 billion per year on statin medications, and we probably spend another $100 billion uh, on doctor visits to cholesterol testing and all the rest. So uh, it's a huge fraud because, and it's a fraud because people think it's going to help, and in fact, it doesn't. There's only one very small group of people 
where there's any evidence that it might help reduce heart attacks. And even in that small group, we must treat probably 100 patients to prevent one heart attack. Whereas if we treat one patient with uh, antibiotics for an infection, for example, we will expect almost a one-to-one treatment. That's called a number needed to treat. So in terms of heart disease, we have to treat 100 men for three years to prevent one heart attack. If we treat uh, 100 men with antibiotics for an infection, we would expect 99 to be cured. So in those terms alone, uh, statins are, are fraud because they don't deliver the results that people think they're going to get. Over and above that, there is now some evidence that the statins may actually cause, or statins are at least associated with an increased uh, incidence of diabetes. And if with the 9 million people or so on statins in this country, if only a few of those got diabetes, we we have a, almost a public health hazard in terms of causing diabetes by the overprescription of a statin drug, which does not do anything for 99.9% of the people who take it. You, you have stated that uh, one of the, di- that there are many disabling side effects of these satin drugs, and I believe uh, you've been quoted as saying that the evidence for these side effects has been suppressed by the statin makers. Is that accurate? Uh, yes, it is. Um, the, uh, there's a pro- project at the University of San Diego uh, to try to collect and have people voluntarily uh, talk about the statin uh, side effects. Uh, an acquaintance of mine, Dwayne Graveline, the former um, physician for the astronaut program, has documented his complications, both in terms of uh, mental difficulties and in terms of physical difficulties, really quite well. Um, uh, you can take a drug as long as you don't want to think or move, because it does affect the brain and it does affect the muscles. So how did this begin, Dr. Lundell? Where, where, where does this information come from that got the whole country on a lower your cholesterol kick and lower your fats and so on? Can you give us the, 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 the bottom line of this, where it, how it started? Where, where did we get on this kick? <laughs> well, we, we got on the kick because we started getting worried about heart disease. About 1950, we had the Korean War. We had President Eisenhower or... Uh, who had a heart attack, and so we became really aware of it. And about that time, someone was able to invent a a test to measure cholesterol. And then everybody was uh, interested in stopping heart disease because we saw young men, victims of the Korean War, who on autopsy studies had severe coronary disease. And so people began to be uh, naturally quite concerned about this. Um... It became an official uh, medical diagnosis only in about 1949, and so then we saw much more reporting of the diagnosis of atherosclerosis. At any rate, along uh, about those same times came a physiologist at the University of Minnesota by the name of Ansel Keys, whose wife happened to be one of the pioneers in uh, learning how to test cholesterol. And uh, the Framingham study was just beginning the first five years 
had been reported, and although it wasn't really true, the reports were that elevated cholesterol was associated with heart disease. What do you mean when you say it wasn't really true? Didn't the Framingham study indicate that the people whose total serum cholesterol was less than 179 had the fewest incidence, and once you went over 179, then the incidence of uh, atherosclerosis and cardiac events increased, or am I mistaken? Uh, a, a little bit. There's a lot of controversy, and we could argue endlessly about the results of Framingham. Uh-huh. Uh, um, but I, the sum total experience, even after 25 years, is that it, Yes, there is an association between elevated cholesterol and heart disease. The real question becomes, does it cause heart disease? Because there's a, there's a direct correlation between, for example, reading comprehension and shoe size. But it doesn't necessarily mean that one causes the other. <laughs> yeah, because... Uh, as an infant, my size is zero, and then as I grow up and get older, so the confounding factor in there is age, of course. Uh, so that's just one kind of silly example, maybe, of how association doesn't mean causation, mm-hmm. and we have to be very careful with that. So what you're saying here is that because there's an association indicated by the famous uh, Harvard-Framingham study probably the longest longitudinal study that's ever been done in this country, um, because there's an association between the cholesterol and, and cardiovascular offense, effects does not necessarily mean that one causes the other in either direction. That is correct. Yes. And what we always have to remember when we see any study reported in the media, so-and-so linked to such-and-such or associated with, linked to, those are all these correlation studies, which, once again, don't mean causation. Mm-hmm. So, they raise the question that often, and is there really a cause? I mean, it's a, it's a good thing to do to make an association, then you can, but if you never ask the next question, you're never con- going to find the truth. So you're saying the Framingham study was an important director that got us moving in the direction of believing that the cholesterol was causing the cardiovascular events. Is that correct? Yes, it got us believing that uh, the cholesterol was uh, causing heart disease. And then along came Ansel Keys, who decided that uh, animal fat uh, raised cholesterol, and animal fat was consumption of uh, saturated fats was directly associated with heart disease. And he published the famous uh, Six Nations, Seven Nations study, which has been reported both ways, in which he showed a linear correlation between heart disease and consumption of saturated fat. The problem with that study is that he gathered data from 22 countries, selected out the six or seven that met his preconception, and that um, uh, published those studies, and that's how saturated fat got associated with cholesterol which got associated with heart disease. And it was interesting, the name of your show is Mind Body Politics, and so uh, when politics uh, entered into it, that's when uh, things got really serious. Are you suggesting that the, the fats that he's talking about in his study do not contribute or are not a major contributing variable to cardiovascular events? They are not. Recently, multiple 
meta-analysis studies, analysis of the nurses' health study, analysis of, of another long-term study, um, uh, the physicians' um, study, all of which show no, no association between the consumption of saturated fat and heart disease. In the beginning, the association was tenuous anyway. The whole theory was that if saturated fats, and only a few of them do, if saturated fat raised cholesterol, cholesterol causes heart disease, therefore we could eliminate heart disease by eliminating saturated fat. So there are holes in the theory all along the way uh, so that the connection between saturated fat and uh, heart disease is tenuous, and it has to go through the cholesterol connection. Take us a bit through the cholesterol connection before I ask you if I can leave this program and go out and eat a couple of Big Macs. <laughs> well, <laughs> indeed, as we say, cholesterol is, elevated cholesterol levels are associated with heart disease, but they are not the causation. And um, so, once again, saturated fat uh, is not associated with uh, with heart disease. In fact, there's an inverse uh, association. A uh, study out of Europe just published in the last few weeks shows a definite inverse association between the consumption of saturated fat and uh, deaths from coronary disease. So, although I wouldn't suggest a Big Mac, you certainly could enjoy your bacon and eggs and uh, a nice uh, grass-fed steak and enjoy it. And the same with the, uh, with the yolk of the egg? I don't have to maintain my, my egg white uh, nutritional plan. I can eat some yolks or eat yolks regularly is what you're saying? You know what? If you eat uh, egg yolks regularly, you will find that your high-density lipoprotein, the so-called good cholesterol, will go up. Well, I, mo- I monitor it pretty regularly, so I'll, uh, I'll see <laughs> how that works. Um, so uh, it's just, I mean, the whole thing is is hard for us to believe. It's been so ingrained in us for the last uh, uh, 32 or 33 years now, and maybe more, that when I say you can go ahead and eat some fat, people uh, look at me like I'm crazy. They just can't do it. Uh, they're still buying low-fat products, thinking that they're healthier. They're um, the low-fat yogurt, the low-fat milk, the low-fat everything, the low-fat cookies, thinking that that is the way to prevent heart disease and remain healthier. But actually, it's quite the opposite. Interesting that you say that because it was about 33 years ago that I completely uh, retrained my entire nutritional plan and I let go of, uh, of, of dairy products. I'm one of those people you're talking about. My, my refrigerator has non-fat uh, milk, non-fat cottage cheese, non-fat yogurts. I, I, the only cheese I eat regular is, is feta, and uh, I eat egg whites. I don't eat the yolks, etc., etc. I mean, I became a convert to that entire uh, research project. And I was always proud of the fact that uh, I keep my cholesterol, my total serum cholesterol, you know, below 179, usually in the low 170s, and my HDL in the low 50s. And uh, now I'm hearing something that sounds almost revolutionary to my ears. 
I, I, I don't know whether to, to, <laughs> to be sorry for what I've missed or to be excited about what I'm going to eat tonight or, or what I'm going to do next year. <laughs> I haven't had a piece of bacon in 33 years. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah, that, that's true. I really haven't. And as far as pizza, I think I've had one or two pizzas in the entire 30 years, and that was just recently. Uh, well, the other interesting thing is, yes, uh, about 33 years ago, we had the the data came out, the headlines, the front page of Time magazine, cholesterol's a killer, and that's when we switched in lots of conscientious uh, people like yourself and professionals. We we were taught to believe it. I mean, that's what I learned in school uh, along uh, as you did. Um, and so we were taught to believe it and it's been ingrained. And, of course, food makers then uh, leapt on that and uh, made uh, hundreds and hundreds and thousands, literally, of uh, low-fat uh, uh, products. And, it, you know, the food pyramid came out in 1980. Uh, it's now been changed to a square, but I don't care what shape it's in. It's the worst dietary advice in the history of mankind. Oh, please go into some detail on that statement. Tell us what, wh- why you think it's the worst, and tell us what you think could be done to improve it. We're, I'm very interested. <laughs> okay, there are basically three macronutrients in our diet. Protein, fats, and carbohydrates. Um, if we decrease in one, we must increase in another if we're going to maintain our calorie count the same. And uh, as you learned in school and as I did, you know, uh, fat has nine calories per gram. Uh, Carbohydrates and protein have four. Therefore, fat should be twice as fattening as uh, carbohydrates or protein. And so um, after Senator McGovern's hearings and the USDA then uh, published the food pyramid, uh, about the same time statin medications begin to come onto the market, we had effective ways of treating cholesterol and on and on. At any rate, um, if we decrease the fat, we have to increase something. And what got increased was our carbohydrates. Mm-hmm. The official recommendations from the USDA, the Heart Association, the American Dietary Association, were to consume about 60 to 65% of our calories in carbohydrates and to avoid saturated fats and go completely to uh, vegetable fats, uh, which I'm sure you and millions of others uh, also did. Uh, I raised my hand on that one. I did. (laughs) Uh, Although my father was raised in a dairy, I remember uh, in the first years of margarine, uh, it came white. uh, The dairy industry wouldn't let it be colored, uh, butter colored, and so we had to break this little colored capsule inside of it and mix it up. And in, instead of nice, uh, pure uh, butter, we now had some kind of uh, chemical concoction. Um, at any rate, um, it also is interesting that the obesity epidemic began in 1980 with the promulgation of the food pyramid with the idea that we should eat the majority of our calories from carbohydrates. Syndrome X, metabolic syndrome, uh, came along uh, a little later in the 80s uh, as a result of uh, the dietary recommendations. Um, The incidence of uh, type 2 diabetes has skyrocketed since the food pyramid was promulgated. 
So once again, I'm not going to be guilty of saying correlation is causation, but I'm going to say we have to start asking the question. Since there is such a direct correlation between the food pyramid, the official dietary recommendations, the obesity epidemic, the diabetes epidemic, and in fact, we have not reduced the incidence of heart disease. So it's a complete failure in terms of improving the health of the country. You think back to 1980. Are we re- you're healthy, but is the country healthier? The country is experiencing perhaps the most serious epide- health epidemic in, in recorded history, isn't it? Now we're up to close to 70% of the population are either uh, overweight or obese, and the, our, our colleagues tell us that at this rate of expansion by 19, uh, by 2030, rather, by 2030, 87% of the American population will be obese or overweight. Well, who cares? I mean, I, I, I care what I look like, but I don't particularly care what the person walking down the street looks like. So why is obesity epidemic important? Well, <laughs> you, we both know that the fallout from the, one of the major fallouts from the obesity epidemic is going to be the, an epidemic of diabetes and of cardiovascular incidence, as well as uh, the major contrib- contributor to cancer. Uh, absolutely. Uh, your introductory remarks about uh, the number of people obese around the country is sort of set the stage because uh, the burden of, on resources is going to be a lot, but the burden in taking care of type 2 diabetics around the world is going to overwhelm some economies, maybe all of them. The, the cost of taking, taking care of a diabetic, even in the early stages with just blood sugar monitoring and medications, n- not to speak of dialysis and blindness and amputations and all the rest, uh, the cost of taking care of these people is just going to overwhelm the healthcare system and overwhelm the economies. For example, in India, uh, they have horrible uh, incidence of diabetes now, and they just don't have the resources to take care of these people. So, give us so, a little, give us a little lesson in in in, uh, in in metabolism here, and tell us how the f- change in the food pyramid in roughly 1980. Um, switching to a higher uh, percentage of carbohydrates, how that contributed to this uh, diabetes and overweight epidemic? I I will. Um, And carbohydrates, whether they be table sugar or whether it be a potato or other starchy vegetable, we digest them and we convert them into glucose in our bloodstream. And uh, we know that glucose uh, uh, is an important energy source for lots of cells, and um, we have to have a certain amount of it. And to get it into the cells, get it into most cells, let me put it that way, it requires insulin to attach to an insulin receptor on the cell wall and push the glucose inside the cell where it's sent to the mitochondrion, and um, we make energy out of it. We do this all day long, uh, all night long. Now, the body tries to control everything in a relatively narrow range. 
Uh, think of temperature, for example. If we get very high temperature, we get really sick. If we get a real low temperature, we can actually die from it. Um, the drive to keep things in a very narrow range, uh, just hold your breath for a second, the listeners can, and see how strong the drive is to control carbon dioxide and oxygen. We know that if sodium or potassium or some of the other uh, essential electrolytes get very far out of their normal range, we get sick, uh, we can die from some of these things. And so the body tries to control everything in a very narrow range. It tries to control glucose in a very narrow range, somewhere between about 80, 70, and 120. Uh, so, um, for some reason, we get symptomatic when our glucose is too low, but we don't get symptomatic when our glucose is too high. After a huge meal of uh, french fries and milkshake and um, a cherry pie, um, we might have blood sugars, even a normal person, of 200. When you stop and think that we do a glucose tolerance test with usually about 75 grams of glucose, don't we? 75. A, a medium fries has 75 grams of glucose. So when I have the milk, that when I have the bun on the burger, and have the French fries, and have the milkshake, and I top it off with the cherry pie, I might have given myself a 200 gram glucose tolerance test. And even in quote-unquote normal people, my blood sugar is going to be 160, 180, 200. It's going to go back down again and uh, maybe overshoot and make me hungry again by uh, 9 or 10 o'clock after I've had that big meal or after my breakfast of uh, my healthy breakfast of skim milk, whole grain cereal, which usually is about 50% sugar by weight, and the other 50% is refined flour. I put on the skim milk, which is mostly sugar water. Uh, I've once again given myself a huge dose of glucose. So I've put a big stress on my body to try to control that blood sugar. And what is, if I eat glucose, I produce insulin. Insulin drives that sugar into the cells, particularly liver, muscle, and fat. Liver and muscle have a limit. They just they say, no, I can't take any more. But fat doesn't seem to have that ability to stop it quite as much. And so all the excess stuff has got to be parked somewhere. And so it's parked in fat. Insulin, in fact, has been called the fat-storing hormone because it does what it's supposed to do. It takes the sugar we eat, pushes it into the cells. And once again, when the liver and muscle are full, it's got only one place to go and that's into the fat cell. And that's basically why we're getting fatter, because we're uh, uh, our glucose, the sugar diet, is so unsatisfying and unfulfilling that we go back for more. We have glucose uh, uh, swings in our blood. I've called them sugar spikes. Therefore, we have insulin spikes. There we have fat storing. And as long as we have insulin in our system, we cannot burn fat. It does. It blocks lipoprotein lipase, which breaks down fat, and so we just can't burn fat while we're on a high carb diet. Once again, the high carb diet is the official 
recommendation of the Department of Agriculture, the Heart Association, Dietetic Association, and indeed the Diabetic Association. So now introduce us to what you have found is the contributing variable or the major contributing variable to the cardiovascular problems, if not the accumulation of cholesterol or fat in the, in, in the vessels. Okay, uh, absolutely. In the, in the book, we detailed uh, pretty much that uh, cholesterol only would get stuck in the wall of the blood vessel if there was the presence of inflammation. In other words, the cholesterol circulating the blood gets trapped by a white blood cell in the wall of the blood vessel, a macrophage, which is our our cells that are supposed to defend us against things that are abnormal. And if there's inflammation in the artery wall, um, then white cells go there as a response. Uh, They look around for an enemy to consume, and if they encounter either oxidized LDL or glycated LDL, that's LDL with a sugar molecule attached to it, they recognize it as abnormal and they consume it. And they don't dissolve it, um, which is what a macrophage normally would do with a bacteria is dissolve it and kill it or the debris and take it away. For some reason, it doesn't dissolve. And what we see in the very early stages of heart disease are what's called foam cells. These are macrophages with these little uh, uh, vacuoles of uh, cholesterol uh, inside the macrophage. And uh, they look like they're full of soap bubbles, and that's how they got the name foam cell. A collection of these foam cells is what's called a fatty streak, and you know I've seen that hundreds of times. You open a blood vessel, and the back wall has got this little yellow stripe down it. And once again, you know we think yellow fat. Oh, I can't eat any fat. Oh, that looks just like a egg yolk. I can't eat that egg yolk because <laughs> it's going to go to the inside of my artery. So it's quite natural reaction from all that we've been taught to to think that. But the fact is, a cholesterol is critical to every cell in the body. We need it. It's part of the cell wall. It's the backbone of most of the hormones. Uh, it's, uh, it's needed. Uh, that's why we make it. We make 85% of the cholesterol in your blood you make in your liver. Dietary cholesterol only makes up about 15% of what ends up circulating around. And um, <clears throat> And so if we did not have inflammation, we would not collect cholesterol in the walls of the blood vessel. This this has been known uh, for a little while, Dr. Miller. Uh, the, the big paper in the New England Journal was 1999 with a headline, Atherosclerosis is an Inflammatory Disease. And people have worked out the mechanisms that I've just explained about LDL into a macrophage, a foam cell, a fatty streak, a plaque, and then finally a ruptured plaque, a clot, and a heart attack. So those are the mechanisms, and we detail that pretty good in the Cure for Heart Disease with some nice little illustrations. Uh, So if it wasn't for inflammation, we wouldn't have heart disease. Okay, so if I understand you correctly, what you're saying is that we're producing 85% 
of the cholesterol in our system ourselves internally. Only 15% of it are we taking in nutritionally, and that 85 plus that 15% would not be collecting on the smooth insides of our cardiovascular system were there not some disruption in the system, which you're calling, saying is, is, is an inflammation, that the inflammation is the is the area in which the cholesterol then becomes attached through this this uh, uh, system whereby the white blood cell goes in attaches to correct the inflammation and then the cholesterol gets connected to the white blood cell and we get this build up or what we call an obstruction in our cardiovascular is that correct that's correct and so you explained it better than I did. <laughs> thank you. So, okay. So then, what I'm taking from that then is that if the culprit is not the direct ingestion of what you say, 15% of our total cholesterol in our system nutritionally, if that is not the culprit, but the culprit is the inflammation, please tell us what we can do to ensure that we don't get these inflammations or if we think we, we have reason to believe because we take a C-reactive protein or a homocysteine test, which I know you're going to tell us about a little later in the program, but we take a test, we find out that we do have elevated inflammation. What do we do to reduce it? So what, a, I'm asking again, A, what can we do to prevent inflammation in our system? What can we do once we have it to decrease the inflammation, please? Okay, great. Two, two great questions, and they, they, they reflect a, a scientist's mind. So uh, inflammation uh, is the response to injury, and if we did not have inflammation, we would not survive. It, we're surrounded in our environment by billions of bacteria and viruses and chemicals and uh, pollutants and this and that and the other. So fortunately, we have this system the immune system, which triggers inflammation, which saves us from all these things and lets us get well from all these things. The body is a beautiful, self-healing machine. It's magnificent. So we need inflammation, and we need acute inflammation to respond to acute injuries. Chronic inflammation is what we talk about in heart disease, and chronic inflammation, inflammation is the response to chronic injuries or little injuries that occur over and over again and never let the inflammatory cascade, you know, go to response to inflammation, to healing, and to resolution. So what is it out there that could injure the lining of our blood vessels uh, and give us these problems? Well, as I mentioned, there, there are lots of them. I mean, just uh, uh, think about the smoker, for example. Uh he injures his blood vessels uh, with that cigarette, uh, and we know the consequences. He ended up with uh, arteriosclerosis and lung cancer, and those are not just associations. Those have been worked out, the mechanisms. At any rate, that's one place. I mean, we, we live in a complicated environment. We, As I say, we interact with uh, bacteria and viruses and uh, chemicals uh, all day long. What in the world could be... Uh, injuring the inside of our blood vessels, uh, say, many times a day, day in and day out, year after year, that ends up leading to heart disease and all the rest. And the answer is, the answer is glucose. 
I mentioned before that most cells require insulin to, to tag to an insulin receptor to bring in uh, sugar inside the cells. The endothelial cell, the cell lining our blood vessels, that little smooth lining you talked about, doesn't have that insulin receptor. And so the inside of that cell is at the mercy of the level of glucose in the blood. And when we overload, there are four pathways. I won't bore your listeners with what they are. But there are four pathways that get overloaded when we have too much sugar inside these cells. And they end up producing a huge amount of free radicals, oxidative stress, and they end up killing the cell. A dead cell is an injury. Inflammation is the response. Now, once again, the body is a wonderful self-healing machine. I've been inside an artery and did an endarterectomy, which is cleaning the plaque out. If I had to go back for some reason a few days later, the endothelium has grown over where I took it out, and it's, uh, it heals very rapidly. Uh, luckily for us, because we now know that uh, the endothelial cell and maybe the pancreatic beta cell and a few others start to get hurt at blood glucoses of 140, 160, certainly at 180. And the average person eating the recommended diet will have that three times a day, maybe six times a day if they're snacking. And so we get these repeated injuries over and over and over again. Now, if you get a, go out on a nice day in uh, Mendocino and get a sunburn, uh, uncomfortable, but uh, two or three days later, you don't notice it, right? Right. Uh, if you got that sunburn four times a day, 365 days a year, what's your skin going to look like? Fried toast. <laughs> it's going to look like the inside of some of the blood vessels that I've seen. Yes. And so stop and think about for a minute about the diabetic and the unique set of complications they get. So what you're saying... They go sa- blind. Yes. I mean, they have renal failure. Yes. They uh, have cardiovascular disease. Yes. And they have some neuropathies. Yes, and the interesting thing neuropathy. is that the, the cells, those particular cells, are all that don't have the same glute for uh, insulin receptor. And so all of those cells are at the mercy of blood glucose. And uh, over time, uh, with repeated injuries, uh, this is what happens. The, the cells in the little blood vessels in the kidney, called the mesangial cell, uh, we end up killing all of those. Uh, diabetics get worse um, because those high sugars end up killing a few of the beta, uh, pancreatic beta cells, and so ultimately they, they, the pancreas works as hard as it can to control the glucose and ultimately finally gives up, and that's when we have to put the patient on insulin. So the, the final mechanism of damage leading to heart disease, leading to uh, Alzheimer's, maybe some cancers, there are certainly some cancers that are associated, uh, is all based on Repeated postprandial hyperglycemia. That means, for your listeners, after meal high sugars. Um, and uh, you know the, the mechanisms are worked out. That's exactly what happens. That's why we get heart disease. It's not cholesterol. It's elevated sugar. 
And that's why I, I said, I made the bold statement that the food pyramid was the worst dietary advice in the history of man. The man that you're listening to, Dr. Dwight Lundell, has written the book, The Cure for Heart Disease. He's also written The Great Cholesterol Lie. What you're hearing him say is that it's not the cholesterol itself that is the major contributing variable to the epidemic of heart disease and diabetes in this country. It's not the cholesterol, although he's acknowledging that there is an association between cholesterol uh, and the cardiovascular problems. But what he's pointing to is our diet, namely the carbohydrates, and namely that glucose itself is causing the irritation in our cells, which is creating inflammation, which is allowing the cholesterol to build up. This is almost revolutionary in nature. Stay tuned to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Miller. You're going to be hearing more as we continue with this with this fascinating this fascinating interview which could affect all of us it's certainly getting me to rethink my entire nutritional plan um and that really is what you're telling us isn't it dr lindell that we need to be reconsidering our relationship to protein fat and carbohydrates in our diet tell us give us some direction with regard to how you would reorient the percentages of these three uh, aspects of our nutrition. Okay, uh, I'd be delighted to. It's, uh, uh, we need to end up reducing the amount of carbohydrates we consume and increasing uh, the fat. Protein, um, if we get uh, maybe 20 or 30% of our calories from protein, that's adequate. I mean, the the, we ought to be getting about um, uh, one and a half to two grams per kilogram of body weight per day. So the official recommendations are a little bit low, but I'm not advocating a so-called uh, high-protein diet. Uh, we're ad- advocating what we normally would call a high-fat diet. And by so doing, we're going to naturally cut down our consumption of sugars. Now, uh, you're the uh, addiction expert. Do you think or have you uh, seen any work on addiction to sugar? Oh, definitely. I mean, the country is addicted to sugar. We know that. We know that uh, just if you keep your, your exercise exactly the same and keep your caloric intake exactly the same and make one change and one change only, namely drink one bottle of uh, soda per day, one 12-ounce bottle of soda per day, everything else kept constant, at the end of the year you'll gain approximately 15.6 pounds, which means you keep that up for three years, you've gained 45 pounds, and you're right into the obesity category. And, uh, you know, if you define addiction as I do, as the continuation of any behavior that has a negative impact on self, family, or business, the continuation of behavior in in the face of negative impact to self, family, or business, uh, we've got tens of millions of people addicted to uh, various kinds of sugary substances in our country. So you're confirming that it's, uh, and you agree with uh, others, it's a a real addiction, not not to diminish uh, 
the damage that's done by uh, drugs, for example. I consider, I, I consider the, the, the addiction to these various food substances to be one of what I call the controllable impulse disorders. Gambling, over-drinking, over-spending, over-drugging. Uh, th- th- these are controllable impulses, and, uh, and the, the addiction to the sugary substances is definitely one of them. Uh, the, sales, the, the sales alone per capita in the United States is proof, of, is proof of it. But again, if you come back to the definition, addiction is injury to self, family, or business, the injury to self is, 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 uh, is prima facie when you have 70% of the country overweight or obese. Uh, absolutely. And I've been doing a little more work on that. And so uh, reading some uh, papers and looking at some PET scans demonstrating the same areas in the brain are activated with uh, elevated glucose or activate, as are activated with the cocaine, for example. Yes, and, and so what we have, of course, is also an increased tolerance. So people don't stay with just one soft drink a day. They move up to two, three, four, five, six. One of the most serious withdrawals that I've ever treated in 50 years of treating people with heroin, cocaine, alcohol, you name it, was uh, was caffeine addiction, where the person was drinking 18 bottles a day of uh, of Coca-Cola and Pepsi-Cola, <laughs> and the and the withdrawal the withdrawal was horrendous, worse than any heroin withdrawal I've ever seen. So that makes it a hugely difficult problem for us to to conquer the obesity crisis, but because we have an addictive process going on. Yes, we do, and because we've been told to go ahead and consume that addictive substance. I mean, telling a diabetic to eat 65% of their calories from uh, carbohydrates is like telling the alcoholic that he should have six drinks a day. Yes. Um, And, you know, we keep pounding the low-fat message, which equals a high-carb message, and so it it makes it impossible, uh, not impossible, makes it difficult for us to overcome that problem. If we would... Um, the the recent HBO special, they're talking about sidewalks and this and then the other about to conquer obesity. Well, the biggest public policy change to conquer the problem would be to change the official dietary recommendations. But because the food lobby, big food, um, big pharma, influence public policies way more than the individuals do, I don't see it happen. So I'm pleading to your listeners, if you want to be healthy, you must cut the carbohydrates. And, uh, you know, the Dr. Atkins got a bad name, and I'm not, uh, don't, I hate to bring the name up because so much silly negativity has been associated with it, but the fact is it's the carbohydrates that are making us fat, it's the carbohydrates that are making us sick, and if we'll cut them way down, we will lose weight, we will not have heart disease, we'll be healthier and happier. Talk to us about fats and give us some direction, please, with regard to which fats we can allow ourselves and which we might be directing ourselves towards and which, if any, fats you believe we should avoid. I believe we should avoid the fats that we've been recommended to take, that is the corn oil, the soybean oil. They um, were never part of the human diet until the last uh, 30 years that we're talking about these uh, epidemics. And the the problem with them is that they are high in omega-6 content, which aggravates the inflammation. So uh, Barry Sears had called it the perfect storm. Uh, 
high carbohydrates, low omega-3, and high omega-6. And, and he's gone to long explanations about the, the mechanisms of how that happens. So enjoy coconut oil, enjoy cook with lard, cook with butter, uh, enjoy all the nut oils, uh, but avoid the vegetable oils, and, and enjoy the natural animal fats. Did I hear you say, enjoy lard? Now that's going to be a real surprise to a lot of people. Say a couple of words about enjoying lard, please. Well, it's, it's what great-grandmother cooked with all the time. She had a, a cup of bacon grease or lard came. And Crisco, which was our first uh, vegetable oil, was not invented to be a dietary ingredient. It was invented by two guys, Procter and Gamble, who were candle makers. <laughs> then when it, you they know, used it uh, to make candles, for heaven's sakes. Then as electricity came along, they were clever enough to see that their candle business was going to go away. And so they decided to make Crisco the healthy uh, alternative, and they gave away free cookbooks and this and that and the other. Uh, so, uh, yeah, you're, if you're using uh, vegetables oils, you, you're eating a, you know, a candle. So uh, coconut oils, olive oil, uh, fat off the chicken, fat off the steak, lots of butter. I mean, uh, I, I, lots of good vegetables are great, uh, the colorful vegetables, but they're made better if you just uh, slather them in butter or a cream sauce or something else. You will find two things happen. One we're immensely more satisfied with the taste, the texture, and physiologically we're more satisfied with fat in our diet than we are with simple carbohydrates in our diet. You never see anybody pigging out on a cup of lard. <laughs> right? <laughs> well, no, not at all, but I was thinking <laughs> I'm going to go home, and, and next time I go camping, I'll take some Crisco with me and stick a wick in it and use it for a candle. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, watch out for corn oil, you're saying, soybean oil, vegetable oil, which all are high in omega-6s. And if you want a reference to that, look up Barry Sears on Google. But you're recommending that we do eat coconut oil and nut oil. Is that correct? Correct, except peanut, Okay, really we is a vegetable okay we've got a little time left and i've got a question i've been meaning to get to the entire program of uh, saving it for the end we already have been eating the wrong thing for many years and we believe we do have inflammation what can we do to reduce it would you recommend for example that all of us take a baby aspirin every day or some kind of a blood thinner what are your recommendations for reducing inflammation okay i'll make this quick uh, thank you Aspirin is an anti-inflammatory, so yes, we should take a baby aspirin every day. The evidence on that being beneficial is pretty good. We need to increase our consumption of uh, omega-3 from fish oil or fatty fish because it's Mother Nature's safest and most effective anti-inflammatory. How would you take it? Uh, as a gel cap. Or okay. Or eat, eat some uh, salmon or mackerel or some fatty fish a couple okay. times a week. Mm -hmm. uh, but a gel cap, mo there's no mercury in it. Mer uh, if you get a good, high-quality fish oil, uh, it's uncontaminated. Okay, or salmon or mackerel. What else can we do? Baby aspirin, salmon or mackerel, omega-3, anything else to reduce inflammation and avoid cardiovascular disease? Uh, avoid the vegetable oils. Yes. And the most important thing is reduce the carbohydrates in our diet, which will stop injuring the inside of our blood vessels. That's the way to cut down inflammation. Reduce the carbohydrates. 
Okay, folks, you've heard it here. This is something to consider, which is a reorganization of our nutritional plan. You're hearing this from Dr. Dwight Lundell. He's, he's uh, performed over 5,000 open-heart surgeries. You want to look for his book on Google, The Cure for Heart Disease, or The Great Cholesterol Lie. He's telling us once again, reorganize our nutritional pyramid, get the carbohydrates down, he's saying, get your fats up, he's saying, you definitely want to be adding C-reactive protein to your blood test and homocysteine. Can you tell us in 20 seconds why? And then I've got to go, Dr. Lindell. Why do we want to add C-reactive protein and homocysteine to our blood tests? Because they're both uh, easily available markers for chronic inflammation. There you and have if it, they're folks. they're elevated, we... It makes our need to change uh, more urgent. You got it, folks. Remember to tell your doctor because it won't necessarily be on the test. C-reactive protein and homocysteine. Dr. Dwight Lindell, thank you very much for the most fascinating interview that's important to all of us. Um, and thank you all, folks, for being with us today. We're going to um, be coming back in exactly two weeks at 9 o'clock. But for today... This program is made possible by our KZYX staff and our in-studio engineer, Mike DeLora. Please, come on back in two weeks at 9 o'clock. And until then, this is Dr. Richard Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for. And it's essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Mm -hmm.